You're listening to the Australian Army Training and Doctrine Podcast. Welcome to the first in our short series of podcasts on the Cove featuring 7th Battalion, the Royal Australian Regiment, and the lessons learnt during the battalion's ready year deployed in the Middle East region. With me is Lieutenant John Pandoulis, who deployed with the battalion on Operation High Road to Afghanistan from June 2016 to February 2017. So first of all, tell us about your role, what you did on that operation. I was deployed as a force protection platoon commander from the force protection element 6 rotation. We were based out of Hamid Karzai International Airport and our role was providing protection and mobility to Australian mentors and coalition mentors operating in Kabul. So for people outside of the Australian Defence Force, what does force protection actually mean? Uh, Force protection as a broad term uh, means anything providing added survivability to a person or cohort. In the context of mentoring operations overseas, force protection is personnel provided not for the purpose of mentoring, but to protect those engaged in mentoring or training tasks. So how did you prepare for that role? What training did you undertake before you left Australia? So our training prior to deployment consisted of a period of approximately five to six months where we went through a training continuum from individual skills all the way up to full platoon operations. The spectrum of tasks that we trained, your basic first aid all the way through to urban combat drills, marksmanship, and specific guardian angel or force protection training involving protecting personnel in an urban environment. And how did you find that training? Did it go well from your perspective? The training continuum was fairly solid. There was battalion-led training and obviously training led by other organisations involved in uh, forming a deployed body to go overseas. What about in terms of the the members of your platoon? Were you confident by the time you left that they were trained to a standard where you were able to trust in their abilities? Yeah, definitely. We had a pretty solid team leaving. Um, Of course, you can't exactly replicate the environment you're going to walk into, but what the Australian Army does do very well is they train you for World War III, arguably, and then more often than not, it's a more permissive environment than you originally trained for. So you do train up to large-scale contacts and platoon operations and receiving QRF mass casualty, but in reality, the chance of that happening is is quite minimal. So, yeah, we're pretty solid when we headed over. I think one thing that wasn't addressed well was vehicle training. The reason for this is just some of the restrictions placed on how you conduct it on Australian roads and also who is qualified to drive what vehicles potentially needs to be looked at because the training we did for both our protected mobility vehicles, Bushmasters, and up-armoured SUVs, which were used in-country, was probably a little inadequate, yeah. You mentioned about the environment, the realities when you got into country. So what were those realities and in what ways were they challenging? So I guess... The Kabul environment can kind of be broken down into the actual physical operating environment being the roads, the heat, the terrain, etc. Then you've got the, the social kind of environment, the Afghans themselves, subcultures, different sects of religion, political allegiances, ideologies. Those can be quite challenging 
across the ranks from the soldier GA on the ground all the way up to the task group commander. But in addition to that, you've also got your own kind of environmental, it's another social environment being the coalition side of it, working with a whole bunch of different nationalities has its own challenges there, uh, knowing all the social cues and living on a multinational base, as well as the sheer proximity of rank to private soldiers, where in a battalion there's one lieutenant colonel overseas, there are many, many ranking members there in a mentoring capacity, and uh, the soldiers are seeing them day to day. So there are three, almost three different challenges there. So for your platoon, which one stood out the most? Which one do you think was the most significant challenge that you faced? Obviously, like it, if you weigh up significance purely based on physical hardship or, or mental hardship, then the environment of Kabul would provide that. It's not the hardest place to operate in, but it's certainly not easy. You're talking differences in temperature from minus 15 degrees Celsius all the way up to 50 degrees Celsius. The air quality is very poor, that sort of thing. It's challenging for a soldier to to remain focused for 8 to 12 hours on a task in those sort of environments. But by the same token, engaging with Afghans lends its own challenge to the men as well as briefing colonels. So you'll have soldiers telling high-ranking members and, and officers how a task will go, essentially, and, and that has a challenge in itself. So the hardest, yep, physically and risk to man will obviously be the hardest thing to conquer, but for a shy soldier or a soldier that hasn't spent as much time around rank or briefing members, that has its own challenges as well. So how did you prepare for that? Do you think, looking back, that the training you undertook before you went into country was adequate to deal with those complexities? Yeah, I think so. We were pretty lucky in that being at the sixth rotation, we had had considerable input from earlier trips letting us know, hey, you're going to need to train soldiers to to brief high-ranking members, etc. As a result, we did kind of tailor our individual and small group training towards briefing, for instance. It's something we introduced early on in the training continuum, as well as confidence-building exercises. So, yeah, I think we prepared well for it. So thinking back to that time, could you describe perhaps how did you go about training your platoon members to be able to brief well and be confident? What are the key things that need to be included in the training to achieve that outcome? Specifically for briefing, the easiest way to do it is seek out a previous performer or example that's been used on an earlier rotation, um, sit them down in small groups in front of their peers and get them to carry out the briefs. You then remove them from their peers, you get them to brief NCOs in the platoon all the way through to briefing platoon headquarters and then once they're comfortable with that you get them to start briefing strangers or visiting high-ranking officers who've come out to observe the training etc and repetition 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 you just keep nutting it out and uh eventually you're left with a fine product it does come differently to different members so the more natural outgoing or obnoxious members tend to take to it a bit quicker but everyone gets there in the end what about in terms of that self-confidence that you mentioned? How do you teach that? How do you teach self-confidence? I think we're lucky in the Australian infantry as most of our soldiers after being in for some time have some form of innate self-confidence. Um, this doesn't always manifest in the ability to public speak in front of people. But in terms of building it up, they build self-confidence through belief in their abilities. And as they get better at briefing and they feel better about it, it comes naturally. You don't really need to specifically target their self-confidence 
it comes with the rest of the briefing and confidence in conducting their other duties as well and in confidence in their leadership. If they believe their leadership, be it their NCOs or officers, uh, cross their tasks and competent in their duties, then they'll be confident in them. So, Thinking back then perhaps to the training you did on the ground once you were in country, how did you keep your skills up to the standard where they needed to be? So specifically for our platoon, living on a large coalition base, there were areas where we could go out and conduct physical training on the ground. It's always a difficult balance and any commander overseas will see this between conducting continuation training or professional development versus letting the men rest and recuperate. I think it's a difficult balance to get right, but it can be achieved. Uh, For us, it essentially meant one day a week we'd spend half a day, if it was available, conducting continuation training. This would be across medical training through to vehicle training, through to GA drills, and occasionally we'd introduce something new just to maintain the interest, so recovery drills. We had the opportunity to conduct recovery drills on actual vehicles, actual wrecked vehicles overseas, and the men got a lot out of that, and it keeps them happy as well. We also got to do bring in external partners, coalition partners with their own unique skill sets to introduce uh, new stuff, escape and evasion, etc., from US members. That's kind of how we address training overseas, and the NCOs conducted their own professional development, specifically focusing on orders, writing, etc. For you personally then, as a platoon commander, what did you do to maintain your skills specifically? Um, It's often hard in a command position to stop and kind of take the time to look at where you're lacking, and uh, even when you do that, quite often you're confronted by your own pride. I like to think that my skill set was maintained through uh, constant communication with my NCOs, um, platoon sergeant and section commanders, for areas where I could improve and drawing on the experience around me, be it from those NCOs who all have their own unique skill sets and experience or from the senior officers around me. In terms of actually sitting down and writing out a set of orders, you're doing that fairly often anyway, so you don't really need to sit down and do tactical exercise and you don't have the opportunity but certainly for the junior officer deployed, there are a massive range of resources out there for you to tap into, not just the officers and NCOs, but also coalition partners, completely different outlooks and experiences that you can draw on there. And I encourage anyone to take it up. Looking back then, now that you've been home some months, would you have done anything differently? Would you have prepared differently for the mission? And indeed, would you have conducted your training differently once you were on the ground? Specifically for our operation, I mentioned earlier that vehicle training and the courses in Australia aren't conducive to effective operations in Kabul. With hindsight, I would have definitely done or instigated more training in peak hour on busy roads and potentially we would have had to put in special measures to allow this training to occur because we are quite constrained by civilian law, etc. But I would focus on replicating the roads in Kabul That was a major thing for our trip. Also, like on a broader outlook, you can never have too much interaction with the guys on the ground that you're going to be taking over from. So with hindsight, I would have reached out to them more. We did reach out to them, but I would do it far more. So in closing, what would your message be perhaps to someone else who might be going out to do the job that you've already done on operations in Afghanistan? What would you say to them in terms of the kind of training you would recommend them to undertake? So if you were 
to be deploying uh, to Kabul to conduct force protection operations, I would advise you to develop your soldiers, develop your team, develop yourself across the spectrum of tasks, be it the mobility piece, work with your vehicles, get out on the roads, be it the force protection piece, build the boys close quarter battle drills, urban combat drills, build their confidence, work on their briefing skills, make sure your NCOs are across the military appreciation process, make sure you're across it, reach out to the members in country, draw on their experience, but don't just accept it at face value either. Enjoy yourself. You will learn a lot. I learned a lot on my trip. I learned a lot about myself. But I think by the time I got back, I just took my foot off the gas for the first time and realised it had gone so quick. So enjoy the experience and learn as much as you can. Lieutenant John Pandoulis, thank you very much. To listen to more podcasts in this series featuring lessons learned from 7RAR's Ready Year, visit the Cove's website. The web address is www.cove.org.au. That's www.cove.org.au. I'm Captain Sharon Maskeldare. Thank you for listening. This podcast is produced by the Australian Army and is copyright the Commonwealth of Australia.